Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others in the way that Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. So regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Welcome to the to Sunday service. It's so wonderful to see you guys here. I hope you guys have had a blessed Sunday uh, or have are having a blessed Sunday. I know it's really sunny outside, but don't be fooled. It's 32 degrees or lower right now. Uh, so if you have any reason at all to go outside, please bundle up. Um, it's quite, I've been reflecting a lot as we've been going through Advent, I've been reflecting a lot on, on God's glory and His goodness and the reality of how difficult it is to face God's glory and goodness while our country is going through um, such a big rise in cases and deaths due to COVID. We are safe in our homes, but many families across our country right now, um, many of them, brothers and sisters in Christ, have lost loved ones this holiday season and it's this is not what anybody has intended or expected more than 250,000 people in our country dying that's more than casualties of the Vietnam War uh, nobody has expected any of any of this um, and if we can just take a minute right now literally a minute to just pray for families for um, those who are sick uh, for the body of Christ to be a witness. If we could just pray um, and also just take this moment to acknowledge um, this pandemic before the Lord. I don't know if many of you guys have been living like there is a pandemic going on. I know, especially for me as well, uh, being holed up in here and just preparing for Advent and um, doing my schoolwork and doing research, it's easy for me to get caught up in what I do that I forget that there's a whole pandemic outside right now. But this pandemic is real. It is by God's grace that it's not real in our lives via our loved ones. But let's just take um, about one minute of just a prayer of silence, um, lifting up those who are sick, lifting up those families, lifting up the witness of the church of Christ that we would be able to, especially in this time of Advent, share the love of Jesus to those around us. So yeah, let's just take this minute to pray starting now. Amen. All right, we're going to continue through our sermon series. Um, it's not Acts. For those of you guys who missed last week, we are done with Acts. 
We are done with X. All your sermon notes, maybe the the videos, keep them on hand. X is a tough book to go through. I'm sure there will be moments where you will have to refer back to different sermons uh, when you're reading different chapters. So keep that, you know, kind of bookmarked in um, in your browsers or whatever you're using to tune in today. Um, but we are now going through our Advent sermon series on Micah. Micah. So if you guys can just open up your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah is in the Old Testament. Micah is after Jonah and before Nahum. These minor prophets, they don't get read enough, but they're they're a gold mine. And we're going through Micah for Advent. Micah chapter 5. For those of you guys who don't remember or, you know, have had a rough week, um, we went through Micah chapters 1 through 4, focusing on 4 and going through the context of 1 through 3. If you guys don't remember what Micah is about, I highly recommend going through Micah this week and just catching up. It's really interesting to reflect on and see what God has for you every morning. Micah chapter 5. This is, I'm reading from the ESV. I recommend that you read from, for Micah, I recommend, ESV is perfectly fine. Um, it might be more accurate because it's Hebrew. Um, if you really, if, if it's really difficult to read the ESV, I would suggest reading from the NRSV. Um, the NIV can be a little shaky. Uh, when it comes to Hebrew, but at the same time, it is still very solid. So any of those three, NIV, NRSV, and ESV um, are fine. I'll be reading from the ESV. This is the word of the Lord. Um, even though we are reading God's word from our own homes and from our beds, I pray that we would do it with all due reverence and it's Advent. So if you guys are able, um, from wherever you guys are, if you guys are laying down on your beds, if you guys are sitting up on your beds, if you guys are sitting at your tables, your desks, would you guys just rise from wherever you are with me? Let's rise for the reading of God's word during Advent. This is Micah chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at, his, at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then... The, Jacob, the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. 
And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please remain standing with me as I pray. God, we just take this time to give you glory. Abba, you are good, and your mercies endure forever. So God, as we read about Israel in a crisis situation, as we read about how you were with them, God, I pray for comfort and rest for your people this morning. I pray, God, for for encouragement to follow you this morning. Abba, I am one small, small human. So God, would you hide me behind your cross that only your words are magnified and only your words are glorified. Father, I pray, I believe in the power of God. I believe in the power of Jesus who is real, as real as the ground we stand on together as a corporate body. And Jesus, you are real and you are walking into rooms. You are settling into hearts right now. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would be with every single heart of every person who is listening, God. We pray that you would move in them. Father God, that they would be able to uh, just encounter you this morning, be replenished by you this morning. We rest in your grace. Holy Spirit, take us to the next level with you. Wake up our souls to the reality of God's word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. Uh, Micah 5. The title of this sermon is The Ruler and the Remnant. The Ruler and the Remnant. Sounds like a nice little movie. The Ruler and the Remnant. Today's main idea is take heart and trust in God over your own plans and your own will. Take heart and trust in God over your own plans and your own will. I also have another sentence for you. Advent is hope in the middle of crisis. Advent is hope or living hope in the middle of crisis. 
So chapter five starts off with this siege. If you remember last chapter, we were talking about the circumstances of Micah's、um, prophecy and his prophetic、uh, time.、Um, Assyria is about to hit Jerusalem hard. All of the people of Israel are shaking in their boots.、Um, it's a really rough time to be alive for many people. Um, and the nation is of, about to go in ruin if they if they lose this battle if they lose this war. Micah、um, previously was、uh, rebuking Israel for idolatry, but they were mainly rebuking Israel for corruption, for corrupting of the message of God, for our own gains. And now they are at this point of war. And Micah and Hezekiah are working to reform Israel to bring Israel back to the Lord. And Micah five starts off with this this siege that's about to begin. Micah, some 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 theologians think that it's a telling of what's coming that the that the nation of of Israel is going to fall. Some think it's an exhortation to get ready.、Um, I believe that it's a it's an exhortation to get ready. Like, get ready,、um, gather your troops, for there will be a siege. And the judge—that's the proper translation, or the more wooden translation, because at the time a worldly ruler was the same same thing as a judge. So the judge of Israel will be struck will be stricken on the cheek. So your enemies will strike the king of Israel on the cheek. That's what the verse says. The ruler and the judge of Israel will be stricken on the cheek, and that in Hebrew is this—it's a connotation of great humiliation. So Micah starts off this chapter with saying, "Gather your troops, right? Assemble your forces, for there is something coming, and the ruler of Israel will be struck on the cheek. But there will be another ruler. We see here. I am always so amazed that I missed so many times that Jesus was mentioned in, in Scripture, but it says here." At the at the end of verse two into verse three and onwards, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, one whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and it goes into what this ruler is going to be. There will be another ruler. The first thing that is stated about this ruler, like let's just throw out the fact that this is clearly a reference to Jesus. Let's just examine. Okay, so Israel is in siege. Micah is telling them, "Get ready, for the worst is about to come." And then there's this understanding that Micah says, "Oh, your ruler, the ruler of Israel, will be struck on the cheek. The sign of great." Humiliation, and then there's this abrupt shift. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, this first understanding we see of this new judge or this new ruler that is coming is the first thing is he's from Bethlehem. Now, what is the significance of Bethlehem? There's a twofold significance of Bethlehem. You know, we can skip ahead to Luke chapter one. Obviously, the significance of Bethlehem is that it's the birthplace of Jesus. But if you threw that out for a second, 
The significance of Bethlehem for the history of Israel is that number one, it's the smallest clan in Israel. It is small, 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 right? And it's in one of the more lesser, one of the lesser places in Israel as well. It's not a very established or, you know, popular or influential town. Quite far from it, it's, it's one of the smallest, if not the smallest, clans and towns in all of Israel, all of Judah. It also happens to be the place from where David is from. King David is from Bethlehem. It's one of the smallest families in the tribe of Judah. But in the same sentence, in the same line as Bethlehem Ephratah is mentioned, but you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One is one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is very significant, although it is it's very easy to go over because from the smallest clan in Israel shall come out a ruler for the Lord. For the Lord. You see this in, in the time of Israel, you see this like this amplification of the worth and the and, and the influence and the power of this ruler from Bethlehem to going out for the Lord. Greater than any other any other clan, any other person, any other entity or, or authority. From Bethlehem to God. Being of Bethlehem to being of God. From ancient times is the next line. And then a lot of people talk about how, oh yes. Ancient times, that's talking about how Jesus was foretold from the beginning. Most likely, thats I would say that that's, mm, theologically it's sound, but biblically it's not. I would say that this understanding of ancient times is probably talking about the times of David. That this ruler was promised from the time of David, is coming out from the same town as David, but is going out for the Lord. And we see this here. The line of David is mentioned twice of old and Bethlehem, one of the smallest families of the tribe of Judah, but will go out for the Lord. And then what will happen? So these are the first couple things that are mentioned about this ruler, and then scripture goes into emphasis about what this ruler is going to be. This ruler, God is going to establish this ruler, and this ruler will stand in order to accomplish the plan of God. The ruler stands tall, the, one of the main, and this is very significant, one of the main things that the ruler is defined to do is to shepherd the people of God by leading, protecting, and providing for their needs. By leading, protecting, and providing for their needs. So he will shepherd God's people by leading, protecting, and providing for their needs. We see this new ruler that comes out of Bethlehem of the tribe of David and goes and is a ruler for the Lord, but that's not it. That's not just it. He will he will stand. He will be established by God in order to accomplish the plan of God. 
And he will shepherd God's people by leading, protecting, and providing for their needs. We see this understanding because leading is this understanding of somebody who goes before, who leads the charge, who leads initiative. Protecting this this uh, second understanding of a leader that will go after his people, will will care for his people, will shield his people. Not just taking initiative, but shielding. And then the third is providing. That the leader will not just be a leader that takes charge, and not just a leader that shields his people, but also will care by providing everything that his people need. And it's this understanding of true security. Um... What do you think are the three main things that a human being needs? A human being's basic needs. What do you think are basic needs? Possibly food? Food? I'm forgetting the second. It might be, it might either be water or other people. Um, belonging and shelter uh, these three or the four things that I've mentioned are some of man's most fundamental needs and these three things that this shepherd or this ruler will do is probably the most effective three the three most effective ways to cover a human being's fundamental needs. And we see here that it brings true security to the nation. His reign is marked by peace. When we look here, it says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. And then the the um, the break and the line is not as visible what in the um, application that I'm reading from, but there should be a bit of a break. A bit of a skip if you're reading from a from an actual book of the Bible, there should be a skip. And then the language of it all of a sudden changes from Micah talking about his people, everything in third person, all of a sudden to when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our order all of a sudden in verses five through six after security dwelling in the kingdom of god this new leader this shepherd who will bring peace is mentioned in in the end of verse five to verse six the people start getting really overconfident about defeating the assyrians when micah's not even talking about that right now so that's why what you're seeing here is actually this kind of back and forth. In Micah chapter five, we see this back and forth where the where the voice and the of the of the person who's speaking kind of changes. 
and it switches to we. And it switches from this future ruler that Micah's talking about, which granted in the writing, it's pretty clear that Micah's not just talking about the present, but that Micah's talking about the distant future. But then it switches and then the people of Israel you, they, they start talking about the Assyrians, about this future battle in this way that's really overconfident. So the people start getting really overconfident about defeating the Assyrians when Michael's not even talking about that right now. How does it sound to you? So we see Michael chapter 5, right? People are about to get ambushed by an empire, this small nation. The small nation, that's half a nation really, because it's the southern kingdom of Israel, is about to get ambushed in right now by the king of Assyria. And Micah is talking about this future ruler that will establish himself, that the Lord will send from the town of Bethlehem, who will completely secure the people of Israel. And, will be, and, and his reign will be marked by peace. And then all of a sudden, in, in the end of verse 5 to 6, there's this switch in language to the perspective of God's people. The people who are listening to Micah, technically. Even if they're not actually listening. What do you see? I see a people who seems to be more focused on right now and on themselves than they are focused on the Lord. So it's, it's, Micah comes out and he says, prepare yourselves. There's going to be an onslaught and the king of Jerusalem is going to be utterly humiliated. But from Bethlehem, there will come a ruler and all of a sudden there's all this future hope language. And then Israel gets encouraged and then does what? They switch right back into the present, almost completely ignore the fact that this is not about um, the present, but it's about the future. And they seem to be more focused on right now and on themselves than on God. It's like when, like if you can imagine that. I don't know if y'all have ever almost been ambushed before. Have you almost been ambushed before? Um, I have not. I have not been ambushed before. I mean, maybe by our community, but I've never, you know, we have never, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I don't know why I said that. I have no idea why I said that. My brain is not in my, my soul is just, anyways. So, um, America has not been ambushed, partially because America is a nation of strength, right? Um, but if you can imagine, their capital city is about to go under by an empire. And all hell is breaking loose. The people of Israel are getting real worried. The king of Israel, all the rulers, all the military strategists, the troops, they're all getting worried. And here in the middle of all that stands Micah saying there's hope for the future. But really, if you really think about it, if the people of Israel are struggling and wrestling and Micah comes out and says all this future stuff, you got to understand, Assyria is about to take Jerusalem. 
Everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off. You know what I mean? They're just running. Everybody's just running. Everybody's just, they're just, it's not like thoughts are actually forming and, and things are being cohesively done. Everyone's in survival mode. Everyone's in full on crisis mode. And Micah says this thing about the future. And they listen to this hope of the future while their present is crumbling. Some of you at that point might question God. God, are you with me? God, how can you let this, I mean, never mind a future hope. How can you let this happen to your people right now? And the people of Israel, they seem to switch on another switch and they get overconfident. Oh yes, there's a future hope. Therefore, when the Assyrians come in, we will establish X amount of people and X amount of shepherds and we will wipe them out and we will rule over them. There's this like sense of denial, kind of. There's this sense of self-centeredness. There's this sense of focus on what's transient rather than understanding what's eternal. It's kind of like, but but and and there's in the midst of this overconfidence, there's this undercurrent of insecurity. It's like when our parents tell us that something's gonna be okay and it's not actually okay. Like, for example, let's say. Let's say you're hurting. I don't know if, I, I don't know what it's like for, Jesus. Not that knocking on wood does anything, but uh, I've never had my appendix burst, but some people have. And um, some people have had their appendix burst. And if you've experienced any excruciating pain before and your parents are taking you to the hospital and you're like, The appendix, by the way, is on the right side of your body. So if you feel a sharp pain right under your rib on the right side of your body, uh, pray and be careful and tell your parents immediately uh, not to give a public health announcement. But uh, when your appendix is right there, oh my God, my friend, when she had appendicitis, she actually like threw up. She had had, not to throw her under the bus, but she had had pho, um, the the hour before with another sweet mate and an upperclassman and she was taking her final in business class. She's a business major and a graphic design minor. And in the middle of finals, she runs out of her final into the bathroom and starts throwing up profusely. She's like in an excruciating amount of pain, breaking out in a cold sweat. I remember I didn't know until I was in, I think I was in a small group meeting at that time. I was in a small group meeting at that time and all of a sudden a bunch of women are gathered around like outside the suite praying fervently for my friend. And I'm like, why are these women praying like and weeping? And I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, hey, your suite mate is in the hospital right now. I remember I ran like the court. It's supposed to be a 15 minute walk. I ran it in three and um my legs were like jelly and we, we went to the hospital in the emergency room. Um, her sister came up from New York City. It's a really, it's really terrible. It's really terrible, partially because it, when, when your appendix, appendix gets severely infected to the point where it needs to be removed or when it bursts, it's, 
it's a lot of pain for a pretty unnecessary part of the body. Um, it's like really unnecessary. There, nobody can fully tell what the appendix is supposed to do. Partially because when it gets removed, nothing really happens. Um, but yeah, when it hurts, it's in so much pain. And when you're in that much pain, you're going, you're going to the hospital and you're like, mom, dad, I'm in so much pain. And they're like, honey, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And they're weeping. They're like, no, my baby, but it's going to be okay. And they're saying that it's going to be okay, but it's really not okay. It's really not okay. And for the first 10 minutes, you're like, yeah, it's going to be okay. An hour in, waiting for the emergency room, you're just inwardly cursing everybody and everything, including your parents. It's like, they said it was going to be okay. It is not okay. And that's kind of like this, this muscle that we see kind of erupting in the people of Israel. Like Micah saying, hey, there's a hope for the future, but they're about to get ambushed in. And they're like, what we're going to do is this. All right, all right, God is with us. So what we're going to do for right now is this. And like, clearly they're not hearing things for what they are, partially because it's a crisis situation, partially because there's this, they, you know, if I, if I were, if I were in Israel at the time, I would feel lied to, you know, um, or maybe even, I would maybe even feel bitter at God. Like, where, where are you actually? Like, you keep seeing that there's hope, you keep seeing that there's grace, but my situation is not getting any better, Lord. You know, where, where are you? And that's kind of the situation that Micah starts off with. That's the circumstance for the foretelling of Jesus Christ and Micah. Okay? They're about to get ambushed and Jesus has talked about it. Ain't nobody listening. This continues as God talks about the remnant of Israel. So from f- verses 5 through 6, the people of Israel, they state their plans. Okay, here's what we're going to do. And Israel is going to, I mean, Assyria is going to fall. And then in verse 7, we switch over to language about the remnant. It says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. And it goes on and on and on. Now, there are two bits of imagery in verse 7. First is dew from the Lord, and the second is showers on the grass. In, in, in the, now, if you, if you know, the geographical location of Israel is the Middle East, or more, a more politically correct way to describe it is Western Asia. If you know anything about the climate of Western Asia, Western Asia is kind of like desert land. Lots and lots of arid desert, and it's this, it's this mix of this humid, fertile land, mountainous ranges, and the desert. Very, very, very testing bit of, bit of land. Um, and in the, in the winter months, there was very little precipitation in that area. So the way that plants stayed afloat and alive is they relied on dew in the morning to retain their moisture and to get more water. There was very little rain. So the main way that plants or any level of crop were fed, other than the water that farmers would Spray onto get feed the the plants with would be dew. So 
in this in this context, the terminology of dew and showers, it signifies fertility and life. But it also signifies, if you know anything about dew, dew comes in the early morning, in the early hours of the morning. It's still dark outside when dew forms on the grass because um, water cycle, brief water cycle lesson, all the water that is floating in the air with the temperature drop con- condenses and, and settles on the ground. So it's, there's this, there's this, and especially because it doesn't happen very often. Precipitation doesn't happen often in the winter months. There's this air of mystery and this air of fertility. And what Micah is getting back, because the voices switch back to Micah after verse six. What Micah is getting at is that mysterious gifts are from God and not controlled by humankind. In a situation like waiting for a shower and expecting dew, all a human being can do is wait. There are, you know, um, machines nowadays where you can like kind of spray. I know our, our church has one where you can like, it feels really, I feel like a boss every time I put it on and I have to sanitize everything because it's like this, this sanitizer blower where you turn it on, it starts whirring up like a vacuum and it's just like, you're just like spraying hand sanitizer on everything. It was, it's really fun. Um, we're not supposed to waste it, so I try not to waste it because somebody donated it and it's apparently pretty expensive. But I had a, back when we used to, when the weather was, was good enough to meet outside for SNG and for Kajuga and stuff, I would have to spray down, it's part of my responsibility to spray down, you know, any surface that human beings might touch um, if they had to go into the building, be it, you know, in the kitchen or the bathroom. And so I would just kind of, you have to like kind of strap it on over your shoulder and you get to just, you turn it on like you would a vacuum, it starts whirring and you just, you just kind of like walk ahead and just kind of like spray and spritz everywhere. And it's, I don't know why it makes, I don't know why it makes, well, I don't know why it was so cool. I actually, probably because I'm, I'm an old harmony, but, um, they didn't have anything like that back then. They didn't have any sprays. They didn't have any foamers, any misters, anything like that. So if, there were water in that form on the grass. The only way to bring that about was to wait. There was no viable way to have water fall from the sky except to wait. And it wasn't as common as it is in, I mean, yesterday we got an onslaught of water in all shapes and forms last night, you know, it was just solids and liquids and everything in between. Um, but that doesn't really happen over there. So it's this understanding of only God has control over this thing. And there's this, as, as Michael goes into the rest of this, in this chapter, the understanding is that there should be no room for human pride or triumphalism of what we will do. At the end of the chapter, it mentions your hands will be lifted up and you will defeat your enemies. But, you know, the hand be lifting up is a sign of pride. Uh, after this, this verse where it's basically saying all you can do is wait on the Lord and verses eight through 10, it talks about how Israel is like a young lion mowing down everything in its path. And it's not a good reference at first glance, like a young lion sounds like really majestic and powerful, but it's not, it's not a good reference. It's a reference to pride. It's a reference to overconfidence in yourself. 
So what Micah is getting at in the second part of the ver- of the chapter is God is in control, Israel. Give up your pride. Give up your plans. What he's calling upon the Lord to and he's he's demonstrating total confidence in God and requesting that he asserts authority on his people. Micah's call is don't ignore God's plans, which do not wait for man. It goes on verse 10 through 15. So it, so if we, it goes on verse 10 through 15. I'll go over this first. 10 through 11 is that false military hopes will be purged. Horses and chariots will be cut off. That's the main means that nations fought enemies. And there's this fighting Micah fights up against the nationalistic fervor that Israel has of war. Verses 12 through 14, false religious hopes will be purged. And Micah attacks idolatry. So if you understand here, verses 1 through maybe 5, verses 1 through 6. Oh no, verses 1 through 5 is Micah's hope, exhortation of hope on the future leader of Israel. Then at the end of Micah chapter 5, verse 5 through 6, is a, is Israel's response, which almost completely ignores the hope of Jesus and just goes yapping away about our present situation. And then Micah, in verses 7 through 15, basically goes on explaining our, our result, our outcome of this war, of our country, is in the hands of God, not in the hand of man. And he states how Israel is right now. You are prideful. You are like a young lion. Your hands are over your head. And then in chapters, and then verses 10 through 15, it goes into this prophetic call of the purging of false hopes. One interesting thing to note here is that verses 10 through 11, false military hopes will be purged. And verses 12 through 14, false religious hopes will be purged. And we see here this juxtaposition. What juxtaposition means is when you when you have something side by side. And it's this comparison, this correlation of fighting in war and idolatry. Fighting in war and establishing our own plans and our own game game plan and idolatry. Why? Why are both of these things put side by side and then put under the umbrella of false hope? See, when... When we are overconfident in ourselves, and when we are insecure enough to rely on other people too much, oftentimes they are the they are two sides of the same coin. You might meet a person who's like, "Yeah, I can do it. Like, I can do it. Like, oh, can you? I mean, I'm not a dude. I'm not. I'm not. Wait, I'm not. Oh, my bags really? They just increased a lot. Um, I'm not saying that men are are like. Brawly, brawly, brawny, and aki, and all they do is like 
yeah, mad stuff or anything like that. I'm not saying that by any means. Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Um, but let's say, let's say there's this really heavy, let's say there's this really heavy piece of furniture or, 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 I don't know, just equipment, right? And you ask an overconfident person who is a gym bro and is really overconfident in his abilities to to be able to lift things. And you say, hey, can you lift this for me? And clearly this thing is like 300 pounds. But he looks at this, he looks at his arms, he says, I can do it. And for the rest of the day, He's in charge of carrying this piece of equipment and he's huffing and puffing, but he's also at the same time making it seem like he's completely okay. He's clearly growing red in the face that he's carrying and he's like, you okay? And he's like, I'm fine. This is light, light work. Um, when you see somebody who's overconfident in their abilities, it's partially because they have built it up, but also partially because they need that overconfidence to be able to operate. On the other hand, you might see another person who's extremely insecure of themselves. Maybe they aren't, they don't see themselves as, as lovely at all. They don't see their life as having value at all. And they rely on other people to find worth and significance in themselves. This happens quite often. Um, I've been there in both ends actually. But overconfidence in your abilities because you've built it up to a certain extent and you need to uphold that overconfidence and insecurity in yourself to the point where you rely on other people for value in yourself is often two sides of the same coin. We see this picture of somebody who is insecure and somebody who is overconfident and yet what they're struggling with is the same thing at its core. And this is a self-fixation. Um, I don't want to go so far as to call it an obsession, but there's this clear, heavy centeredness on their perspective internally. Not a lot of what people say will impact the way that they feel about themselves, the way they feel about other people. It's, it's often that their eyes and their criticism and their praise is so inward focused it's a very fragile, fragile state of mind when we are not able to, when we are not able to be secure enough that we have to balloon our significance to ourselves or shrivel up our significance to ourselves. It's, it's, it's not a weakness. I mean, it is a point of weakness, but it's not like a sin. It's not like a, I would say being centered, but it's not like a negative thing. I'm not mentioning it with any negative connotation because all of us might have been there at some point. And I still wrestle with insecurity, right? Um, but it's just a more objective statement. When you assess the situation, oftentimes the root of either side has to be based in the centeredness on the self. In that same way, Israel's fighting Assyria and Israel's idolatry in Asherah is the same thing. 
where at the core, there's a fixation or desire to do what you want to do and a lack of trust in God to carry you or that he's real in general. And then you might find yourself believing in other things or making a plan A, a plan B, a plan C because you're going to win this war no matter what. So we see here this hope that Micah gives that the Israelites cannot receive partially because they cannot trust in God to pull through for them partially because they cannot give up what they want to do and they miss the point of perspective and they miss the sovereignty of God you might ask why are the Israelites not listening That's pretty, some of you guys who might be like, oh yeah, I trust in God, might be like, oh, how come Israelites aren't listening to the Lord? And then on the other end, some of us who are more sympathetic to the Israelites might wonder and question, how come God is doing this? I mean, they're just struggling. How come God is killing their morale? The first thing to remember is that Israel is in crisis. They're not hearing the hope of the future Partially because it might not feel practical enough for their crisis right now. They're in survival mode. They're trying to fight something off. And they're vacillating between this overconfidence and this agony and this pain. They're overfighting their situation. And they're not really finding that they have the time to listen. I know I do this a lot. If I'm in crisis mode and things need to get done and somebody's saying something next to me, oftentimes I'm too busy trying to get the crisis done and over with that it's hard for me to actually stop and pause and breathe and listen. And that's what the Israelites are going through right now. They're going back and forth between these various responses because they're in this moment of crisis and they're not sure whether or not God's going to pull through for them. How do you respond in a crisis? That's how I respond. That's how the Israelites respond. How do you guys respond in a crisis? Maybe some of you guys are in that crisis right now. How do you guys respond in a crisis? A critical thing to note is that the promise and the hope of Jesus was given to us in a crisis. You have to understand here, Jesus, you know, we just saying, oh, come let us adore. It's not just rainbows and butterflies, everybody holding their hands like this, everybody wearing Santa hats, swaying this way and that way, singing carols together in air-conditioned rooms, listening to it in concert halls, listening to it in the comfort of our own rooms, singing it together with everything in our pockets, right, right where it belongs, with complete peace and comfort. The promise and the hope of Advent came when Israel was falling apart. The promise and the hope of Jesus was given in the middle of suffering and crisis. It was given in the moment of the brink of disaster. When everything that the Israelites knew to be the reality was about to fall apart, that's when God says, I will bring a ruler, 
I will bring a man from Bethlehem. And he will shepherd you. And you will dwell secure. And he will bring peace. You might feel like the time of Christmas is fickle in the midst of a pandemic. Us putting on Santa hats, celebrating with cranberries and fruitcakes for a Santa that will never come because he's not real. Um, sorry. Um, and, you know, all of this celebration, to some extent, you might even feel guilty about it. How can I celebrate? But you have to understand that in response to a nationwide moment of extreme crisis, that's when God promised Jesus. It's not when we were happy, when we had it all together, that God promised his son. It's when we were at our lowest, when we were enemies with God, when we were weak. Romans 5 says, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The promise of Jesus did not come when everything was put together. The promise of Jesus takes form in the middle of crisis and destruction. There is nothing fickle about Christmas. And this is the best time to hope. But we see here, at the same time, that the promise of our Lord, our Lord who would take on our sin, who would reconcile us to God, who would give us a hope that will last forever, that will never put us to shame. In the midst of a weighty, heavy, pricey hope, Israel still does not get the point. The hope of Jesus is not enough for them. They want relief now. And they want what they want to happen. In the middle of their agony, you know, if we were sitting with them in their distress, we would probably feel really sympathetic towards them. But in the middle of their agony, and, and we might even relate to that agony, that pain. I'm sure many of us have been through moments of pain and suffering. Moments of crisis where our world was about to fall apart. Right? And we might relate to the Israelites in this way. But we see here pretty clearly that in their focus and in what they're asking for, they might have missed the point. Some of you guys might be wondering, you know, Jesus, Jane, I know, I hear you, but this promise of Jesus isn't realistic though. Will it put food on my table? Will it help my family? Perhaps not in the way that you are thinking.
But let me tell you something. Everything you have is because God gave you the opportunity. And let me tell you something even greater than that. You might feel like the gospel is unrealistic. But let me tell you something about the gospel. Jesus broke physics, science, the theory of relativity, the function and the course of life in this dilapidated, decrepit world. And he broke all the rules of normality that you adhere to when you call something practical in order to buy your life and bring you to the kingdom of heaven. If that is truly the God that we believe in, Within his rules and his constraints of practicality, food on our tables is a small fry. Sickness, grief, a small fry. See, because Jesus broke everything and then willingly showed up to die and then went through all the trouble of being raised again from the dead in the flesh to do something far greater than food on your table and it's very very real I say this with severity Just as much as I say this with compassion. Because we often forget that we are dealing with God here. The promise and the hope of Jesus was given to us in a crisis. Now what can we apply? The first thing we can apply is human overconfidence versus God's sovereign plan. Where the Israelites cry out and lament about their situation, but do not go to God. They refuse to go to the Lord. They cry out about their distress. They curse God for their lament, but they choose to not go to God. Why? At its core, there's this battle of wills. This battle between our will and God's will. Wanting our plans to happen and wanting to control the future. We have to, at some point, be open to the sovereignty of God. We sit here with the acknowledgement of the reality that God is real. I truly believe that God is as real as me. But 
Like some of y'all have not seen my mom yet, but I have seen my mom and I have touched my mom and I know that she is real. And I tell you about my mom because she's real. And you have not seen her, but you believe that she is real. God is real. You might not have seen it. I have not seen it with my own eyes, but I have experienced enough to know that Jesus is real. And if Jesus is real, and if we are in a situation like the Israelites right now, as we are confronted with the hope of Jesus Christ, our reaction must be to be open to the sovereign plan of the Lord. Because let's face it, if we thought that God was a genie, and if God did everything that we wanted him to do, rather than do things that he knew was best for us, Jesus would not have come, and we would still go to hell. Because that's not what we want. What we want is relief, often. What we want is for things to be better. A lot of the times, what we want might be the experience of God. And we might not find enough value in the things that God values. But if you look at our prayers, do we ask for a savior for our eternity very often? No. We ask for a temporary relief by our Messiah. For transient relief from our situation. So by our desires... The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ would not be as big a priority. And what would happen to our eternity? See, that is how short-lived and short-sighted we can be when we are overconfident. So when you are confronted with Advent in the middle of crisis, we must open our hearts to the possibility of God's sovereignty in our lives. We must suspend our conclusions about God and about the world just for a second. To let in the possibility and the hope of God. The second thing we can apply is peace in the midst of a storm. What do you trust in right now? Do you trust in the vaccine? Do you trust in South Korea's CDC? Do you trust in your plan of expatriation if Trump becomes president again in 2024? Do you trust in your escape hatch? What do you trust in? Military, people, the amount that you've read the Bible this week, what are you trusting in? What does it mean for you to trust in God? See, because Advent is marked by peace, hope, love 
And when the hope, not of better circumstances, not of this storm getting any better, but when the real, real hope that God is still in control and he has sent his son, as we await our Jesus for a second advent before he comes again, because he will, he will. What is your life marked by in your advent as you are confronted with Jesus in the midst of crisis? What does the second coming and the birth of Jesus mean for you right now? Is it something you throw under your rug only to take out the next Sunday? Is that peaceful of you? How's that doing for you? When you throw the hope of God under the rock. How's that going for you? You said, maybe for the next six months, sure. We have to trust in God. Practically, that might look like balancing our present reality with future hope. I'm not saying to throw away your present reality by all costs. I'm not saying to be a, to completely let go. I mean, I'm going to be in eternity anyway and completely let go of your obligations as a, as an employee, as a student, as a career woman or a man. But there must be a balance. You must strike a balance in your heart between your present reality and your future hope. You cannot get so sucked up in your reality that you lose sight of eternity. Advent is all about setting our hearts and our eyes back on what matters. And hoping, not in a bigger house, a bigger car, a better family, but hoping in eternity with the Lord. And not just hope, confidence, faith. A temporal setback. is a part of God's plan and will not prevent him from establishing his rule over the earth in the future. That is both challenging and offensive. Challenging or offensive and also encouraging. Because God's still in control, but why would he let this happen to us right now? We tend to do that. When another human being, when another worldly entity leads to chaos we always tend to blame god because at the end of the day god is all powerful isn't he but we tend to blame the lord for something that he did not start 
A temporal setback is a part of God's plan and will not prevent him from establishing his rule over the earth in the future. Because God knows what he's doing. And let me tell you something about hope. Hope is practical in suffering and in crisis. When God gives us hope, it's not a pipe dream. You might think, well, God, you promising Jesus doesn't make my current situation any better. It doesn't make my past hurts any better. It doesn't make this global crisis any better. But Jesus, aside from the completely, completely invasive and extreme reality that Jesus went to lengths that nobody will ever go to for you again. Just for you to be saved. Aside from that crazy reality that we celebrate in Advent. That he was born to die. Hope is practical. I'm going to read out a passage or a quote that I was just reading right before I came to preach today. Hope is practical because it is seen in the eyes and the smiles of those who believe. It influences attitudes towards what can be done. And it looks beyond the present problems towards the one who has the power to control the solutions. Without hope, there is no reason to go on. There is no reason to live joyfully. And there is no reason to serve willingly. Uh, there was a there was a quote that I used to live by when I first started to you know pursue justice right before pursuing ministry and, and it still applies very much so to my life. Um, I was very I was very cut down about you know because I'm I'm a cynicist. It's very easy for me to get caught up in cynicism and I and I tend to just get all you know what's the point kind of thing. Like, oh, this world is constantly going to be utter thong. Like, nothing's ever going to get better. No matter how much I bust my butt, inequality is not going to get better. Racism is not going to lift. Like, how are we going to defeat these systemic systems? It's going to be impossible. The systemic oppression, I have, I don't, I don't see a way. I used to be, like, really, really discouraged and, and hopeless about, about fairness and equality in our world. I remember somebody saying, you know, you might not be able to change the world. But when you touch one person and you change the course of their life, you have changed their world. And that is how we change the world, one person at a time. I don't know what it was about that statement, but that statement fueled my love to serve people for such a long time and even now as we're faced with a dwindling Korean church a silent exodus of the second generation it reminds me of the perspective of God hope is very practical because hope can change someone's world
can change the whole outcome of a situation. Hope is everything. I don't mean to quote Prince of Egypt. I don't know why I'm making so many Prince of Egypt references. But the Israelites, they, there's this moment where uh, right after Moses, you know, made the Nile turn to blood and, and the Egyptian magicians also like threw some powder in the water and got, got it to be a similar consistency. And Aaron looks to Moses and goes, Moses, they did the same thing too. We're done for. And Moses says, hey, they can take your jobs. They can take your livelihood. They may take your children. They can take everything you own. But one thing that they cannot take away is your hope. And he commands the nation of Israel to believe. This might sound all rainbows and butterflies. It might sound really cliche to you. But but as somebody who whose mar- life has been marked and changed from desolation to hope myself. I know the power of what hope can do. Because when you have no hope, there's no reason to live. But when you have hope, you have the strength to go on. I can't provide to you all the answers of why God brings around crisis to begin with to his people. Why his people get stuck in crazy situations. But what I knew, what I do know about God's people is that we're not the best people either. And oftentimes we are stuck in a product of if either ourselves or our own actions or a series of wrong events in this world. And yet God brings us hope. God doesn't just attack our temporary solutions and give us relief. Because if what we really wanted was relief, then Jesus should come now. If we really, if what we really wanted was relief while our sin continued. But you see, crisis and suffering and sin have the same, have the same root of evil. The reason why there is suffering in this world, the reason why there is famine in this world, the reason why there is natural disaster in this world is the same reason why there is sin in this world. So if we wanted our sufferings to go away, but the sin to continue, the way that the rest of the world is to continue, but just for us to be okay, that's very subjective. Jesus is spot on when he gives us hope in a person. Because Jesus is seeing our situation. He has seen your situation. He has seen the pain that you've gone through. He has seen the crisis that you've been through. He is seeing the crisis of our nation right now. And he has sent his son 2,000 years ago to deal with the very root of our suffering and to give us hope to give us an alternate future an alternative reality so yes maybe you pray and you feel like god is not with you right now but jesus is real and he was and is and continues to be the answer to all of those things so will you or will you not overload your desires and your wills above god Or will you submit to what God is pointing to? 
Because God understands that suffering better than you do. We do not have a high priest who is unacquainted with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in every way as we are, or as we have been yet without sin. Jesus went through an excruciating amount of suffering and crisis that we will never have to go go through again. That is God's response to your suffering. That is God's response to your crisis. That is God's response to the pain that you have experienced. It was the suffering of Jesus Christ before you were born. So what do you want? What are you asking for? A subjective solution to your problems in the world that you like to live in? Because if you really want all of that to lift, the world needs to end now. And we need to be judged for our sins now. That's how suffering ends in this world. Because human beings, we've brought it in here. And it's not God who's done those things to you. It's man. And God has dealt with it. He continues to enter into your lives, intervene into your situation, and knock on your door. That is the response that God has to your suffering. He's not a God who sits in the heavens and ignores you. He died. That's what Advent is about. Advent is hope in response to pain and suffering and the damnation of sin. That's the hope we hold on to when we wait on Jesus Christ. Because even if the world comes crashing down and you lose everything, And trust me, I've been there before. I've lost more than I can handle in my lifetime, and I'm only 25. But you've got to understand something. That's hope. I stand here before you today because Advent is real. So I ask you again, what do you trust in and what do you hope for? What are you confident in? Could we take this time to pray? That's a really heavy sermon. I realize how heavy it is. But often we miss the point just like the Israelites have, just like the Israelites continue to do, even after, spoiler alert, the nation crumbled because they didn't get it. They didn't get what the answer actually was. And lo and behold, the nation crumbled. And who do you think people were bitter towards? God. What do you hope for right now? Where is the root of your 
pain, anger, your crisis, what is your storm? Maybe some of you guys are not dealing with the storm, but you don't know how to deal with the reality of what our nation has been through this past year. Me too. I'm not out here to sit up in front of you and be like, everything's okay. I've lost a ton of people this year. But I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make it all about, you know, lofty things when I say hope is real. Where do you find your hope? What do you trust in? Why do you keep looking to what you want instead of making room for God? The God who understands what's going on in this world better than any of us. (coughs) And why do you blame God? already answered your questions on the cross. Born a babe. Let's take this time to pray. Maybe some of you guys are offended. Maybe some of you guys are challenged. But let's take this time to lift up our pains to the Lord. And really pray. I am in so much pain and I don't like you because you haven't been there. I don't like how you've been there for other people and not for me. Why me? Why us? Wrestle with God and listen to him. Because he's already answered the prayers that you have had before you knew you were going to have them. And he's not a God that doesn't understand. He understands very, very well. Let's take this time to pray. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.